Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday the 27th of February, Liam Thatcher taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions where Liam looked at the Kingdom of God. Liam is one of the leaders at Christchurch London and a regular teacher and writer on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. So I think it's fair to say that the kingdom is a major theme in the Gospels um, because it was a major theme in Jesus' whole life and ministry. And um, essentially, if you were to sum up <clears throat> what Jesus came to do, I think you could say in many ways it's establishing the kingdom of God. Um, but actually, the kingdom is not a theme that only begins in the New Testament. It's a theme that runs right through scripture, sometimes explicitly using the language of the kingdom or king or ruler. Um, but also, I think, in other ways as well, right back to Genesis, uh, where there was no kingdom, there was no king. Even before there was a king, I think the idea of the kingdom of God still sort of runs through the story of scripture. So what I want to do is just take a bit of a run up to Jesus. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to go through every book of the Bible, but just give you a few ideas of how this idea of the kingdom developed through scripture. Um, and therefore how when Jesus comes on the scene, people already I want to give you an idea of what people's preloaded ideas and assumptions about the kingdom were um, uh, by the time he arrived. So page 14 in my notes um who knows where it is in yours but hopefully you'll be able to find it the story of the kingdom <clears throat> so the beginning of the bible really is starts with creation um yeah a million questions about that of course um but there's eden which is this small section of creation this little garden that god has sort of created and put humanity into and essentially i think eden is a picture of what happens when god reigns now, god is in charge over this region this little area uh, and everything is good um and there's loads we can say about that but um we're told that mankind humanity adam and eve whose names literally mean humanity and life, um, they are made, both of them equally, in the image of God. There are loads of things that that you know, might represent, and I guess some of you may have done a day on Genesis, and so you probably explored some of this, um, but one of the things that I think it's important to, to know um, about image is that actually it was a technical term that was used in the ancient Near East, so when readers of Genesis saw this and saw that um, the humanity, they were made in the image of God, they had an idea of what that word image meant. Um, I don't have a picture, I can't show you, but, um, but if you google um, uh, you can find a, a picture of a statue of a king called Shalmaneser, uh, who was an Assyrian king. Um, and if you search for him and then image, uh, what you will find is a picture of a statue, um, because images were, were statues in the ancient world. Often what a king would do is that they would erect these statues that sort of vaguely looked like them, but probably didn't, they were exaggerated, but they represented them and they would set them up at the boundaries of their kingdom. So if you were a king in the ancient world and you you took over a new land uh, and you wanted everyone to know that you were now in charge of this land, you would erect a statue, an image of yourself so that a, a traveller walking through the land would 
um, arrive in this new place and think, I wonder who's in charge here. And they would see the statue and they'd say, OK, I understand because of this image that I am now coming under the kingdom and the rule and reign of King Shalmaneser or whoever, whoever it happened to be. I think that's an important thing to bear in mind when you hear the idea of us being made in the image of God. Because it means that from the very beginning, we were created to be like those statues. Humanity was created to be like a representation of God so that when other people um, come across our paths and look at us, they go, I now get whose kingdom I'm coming under, whose rule and reign I am coming under. We were designed to point people to and represent the God who is in charge of all things, the king of the kingdom. And as those who were told to represent God, we were given the task of ruling and exercising dominion, which is kingdom language. Uh, and we were told to do that over the creatures of the earth, to fill the earth and subdue it, to work and serve and tend and keep this world. So we're told essentially to, to exercise rule and reign like kings, uh, but actually to do it through servants leadership as well. So it's not meant to be a domineering kingship, it's meant to be serving and keeping and tending this world. And then of course the fall happens, right? And um, you should all know that story. Um, there's this uh, serpent that tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree to do something that uh, God told them not to do uh, and says, oh no, you surely won't die. Actually, you'll become like God. And so they reach out and they try and take this fruit. And of course, the irony is that they were already like God as people made in his image. And yet what they actually wanted was to become like God without God. Um, as Mark says, but it, they basically wanted the kingdom without the king. Uh, that is, they wanted to rule as gods, but without having to come under God's own kingship. And so from that point onwards, I guess the kingdom of God is somewhat broken. Uh, humanity is no longer operating as the image bearers they were designed to be. We don't stop being image bearers, but I think increasingly we fail to represent the one we image uh, properly. And essentially the kingdom unravels. Uh, and what we see is that sin breaks into the world um, because humanity rejects the kingship, the rule and reign of God. And that's the story of the rest of scripture, really. Um, but in the middle of it, and there are all sorts of journeys that happen with judges and various sort of people and positions of leadership uh, get introduced, but there is a promise of a coming kingdom. And that comes from many different directions. Uh, but as we've already seen today, 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage in this. So David is the king um, and in many ways does a great job. and In many ways, does a horrible job as well. Um, but there is a promise to him that actually this line, this kingdom line is going to be significant in the salvation of all the world. God promises a kingdom to arise from David. Um, that will be an everlasting kingdom. And there will be one who is a son of David, a son of God, uh, who will rule and reign. His kingdom will never end. And God will have a relationship to him like father and a son. Um, and there's those to say about that. And actually, in my devotional time at the moment, I'm just coming to the end of Second Kings. And, you know, when you look at the trail of the kings, both of Israel and Judah, like, it's bloodthirsty and horrible and, and depressing. And so there must have been just centuries of people thinking well how is this kingdom going to work out because all the kings just seem to increasingly take people away from God rather than draw hearts towards him uh, but there you go there's this promise of a coming kingdom and actually the um the various uh prophets who then spoke into this vision and what it was going to be like they started talking about the kingdom in many different ways if you were to try and summarize i guess the gospel according to the old testament i don't know where you would go what particular passage you would go to but one of them might be Isaiah 52 
verses seven to eight, uh, where it says, um, uh, it talks about the good news about um, how how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news. That word good news is actually the word gospel. Um, who declare to Zion, your God reigns. In essence, the good news, the gospel of the Old Testament is the ruling and reigning the kingdom of God. That was their hope. And so Isaiah starts to imagine what this kingdom will be like under the inspiration of the spirit. And he talks about this king who is to come, who himself will be a prince of peace, Sar Shalom, the one who brings shalom, fullness, peace, wholeness back to the world. But he will also somehow be mighty God. This king will represent God, but somehow embody him as well. And then in ways that I'm not sure Isaiah could have quite figured out, really, um, somehow there's some mystery around the death of this king this messiah which somehow brings reconciliation um and then other texts like daniel chapter two talk about this kingdom uh being an indestructible uh, kingdom one that would never be dominated or taken over by anyone else so i guess from eden right through the story of scripture you get for a very limited time a picture of a great world in which god is king and then humanity just usurps the kingship the rule and reign of god we get just a story of death and destruction and sin and it's horrible but within the midst of it there's this hope that a king is coming who will be like David but actually in many ways better than David he will continue this task that David has begun of ruling and reigning with righteousness he will bring shalom he will bring peace that he will somehow represent God uh, and then I'm not sure what they thought was going to happen with his death but there was that kind of mystery somehow in it all of that is to say that by the time Jesus turns up and starts saying, the kingdom is here, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. But that wasn't a new idea to people. It was an idea that they had heard of and they had um, been hoping for and longing for and probably had particular expectations uh, about for many, many centuries, uh, thousands of years. So when Jesus turns up and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, like all these kind of... Um, ideas must have just started just just popping off in people's head oh wow is this like a return to eden are we going to get the one who is like david are we going to actually are we going to take over this nation again are we going to kick out the rulers of rome are we going to like they must have been dreaming about all these things that would happen as a result of the coming kingdom so the kingdom is a major theme for jesus uh, he regularly talked about it in matthew he talks about the kingdom of god five times but he talks about the kingdom of heaven 32 times and um, some people sort of think there's a distinction between the two. I, I really don't think there is. I think probably as a good Jew, Matthew just didn't want to use the name of God too much. And so he talks about the kingdom of heaven where other writers use the kingdom of God. And you can see that by comparing the way that he uses it to, to how um, Mark and Luke talk about it. Actually, in John's gospel, um, the kingdom is very rarely mentioned, only twice, I think, uh, which is not to say that the kingdom wasn't a major theme for John. It's just that actually... John uses the language of life and eternal life, basically in the same way that the synoptic gospels use the language of the kingdom. And if you compare some of the stories that are shared between them, I think you can see that quite clearly. So Jesus turns up and he starts speaking about the kingdom to people who are already looking forward to the kingdom and the coming of the king. And it's worth thinking, right, what would people have heard uh, when they heard Jesus talk, talk about the kingdom? What were they expecting? What were they waiting for? And broadly, I think there were sort of three categories. I mean, there were when people talk about Judaism at the time of Jesus, like people often point out, actually, it's better to talk about Judaisms because there were different sort of 
factions and different views within Judaism and more than just these three but these are three which I think are quite helpful for helping us to understand how people were expecting the kingdom are three sort of factions of Judaism um, who had different expectations there was the Pharisees um, N.T. Wright describes the Pharisees kingdom um, hope like this the Pharisees' kingdom plan, in line with plenty of earlier Jewish aims and ideals, was to intensify observance of the Jewish law, the Torah, that they believed would create the conditions for God to act as he had promised, to judge the pagans who were oppressing Israel and to liberate his people. Basically what he's saying is this, the Pharisees were expecting that the kingdom of God would come when the people of God took the law seriously and lived like moral ethical lives, and if we could just live good, pure, moral, ethical lives according to the law, then God would establish his kingdom and kick out the other rulers. And so that's what they were longing for, which is why I think they have massive problems when Jesus teaches about the kingdom and does things that, at least in their interpretation, seem to contradict the Torah, right? The zealots, on the other hand, had a different idea of how the kingdom was going to come. They believed that the kingdom of God needed to come by force, by a demonstration of power. And they believed that if people were serious about the kingdom, then they would be willing to fight and they would die for it. And um, we can see examples of that in uh, the, the revolution of the, the Maccabean revolution, December 25th, um, 164 BC. So before Christ, uh, there's the story um, of the people of God rising up against their oppressors and trying to establish the kingdom by force. And it was bloodthirsty. And, and the zealots thought, well, that's what we need again. We need a king who is going to come and lead us in a war like that. We need to be ready to fight. A third group was the Essenes, uh, believing that others had lost sight of the truth uh, and convinced of their special status. What they did was they decided to enact, like to basically act out um, the, the exile of God's people by separating themselves and living in the desert. So they demonstrated by their wilderness existence the fact that the promises of restoration and redemption were yet to be fulfilled and their task was to stay separate in prayer and purity. So essentially they looked at many of the other their Jewish counterparts and they thought these people are corrupt, they are, um, uh, they are going away from the truth. What we need to do is demonstrate the truth of our reality, which is that we're still essentially in exile. The promises of God haven't come true. So they went and they lived in the wilderness, uh, praying, trying to exist in purity as a symbol of the fact that the kingdom of God was not yet fulfilled. And, um, and they died out. So <laughs> that didn't kind of get very far. But essentially, by showing these three views, and there were probably others as well, I think it's interesting to note that different people would have heard Jesus' statements about the kingdom quite differently. They were all longing for the kingdom. But when someone comes along and says the kingdom of God is here, if you're a Pharisee, you're thinking, great, Torah observance, like purity, ethical purity. People are going to keep the law of God. If you're in a scene, uh, 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 sorry, if you're in the scene, you think, okay, I'm going to, um, <laughs> great, yeah, thanks, Andy. A little note from Andy. Um, feel free to go. I won't say anything heretical in your absence. Um, I promise. I try not to anyway, of course. <laughs> but there we go. Andy's gone for five minutes. He'll be back in a moment. Don't worry. Um, if you're in a scene and you hear this language of the kingdom of God, you'd probably think, great, like someone is going to come who is going to kick out our impure leaders, who is going to bring about this thing that we've prayed for and hoped for. Maybe we can come back from the desert after all. If you're a zealot and you hear someone come along and say the kingdom of God is here, you're going to start sharpening your knife, right? Because you think this is what I've been waiting for. The revolution is about to come. So all of that is to say that the language of the kingdom sparks different ideas according to what you expect the kingdom to be like. So when Jesus turns up and says the kingdom is here, that's like that's a challenging idea. 
And, um, and I think it explains why there was so much confrontation between him and many of the Jewish people. Um, does any of that raise any questions, any particular uh, clarifications we need? I mean, I've basically summarized the whole of scripture very, very quickly there. So <laughs> um, any thoughts or questions at this point? No, great, okay. So next slide then. Let's try and um, think about this kingdom. What is the kingdom like? When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's important to know that for Jesus, this was not a geographical place. Um, maybe people thought that it would be, um, particularly because promises were made to Israel about a particular land and a particular temple and a particular mountain and a particular land. So maybe they were initially thinking of it as a, a geographical reality. But for Jesus, that doesn't seem to be what he is talking about at all. Tom Wright summarizes the kingdom of God, or he defines it like this. He says it is the sovereign and saving rule of Yahweh. D.A. Carson says it's, it's best thought of as the king dominion of God. So it's not just like a particular patch of land with geographical boundaries. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we are talking about the rule and reign of God, wherever it's found. Certainly, originally, Jesus came to bring the message to Israel. So the kingdom was being established here. But actually, it's about the rule and reign of God being wherever we find ourselves in the world. It's about living life under the kingship of God. And I think the implication is that when you're living life under the kingship of God, you should experience something of the wholeness and goodness and shalom and peace that was originally found in Eden and has been lost ever since. So if you look at this diagram here, um, I think this gives us a way of understanding something about the kingdom. Because it's quite clear that Jesus has come to establish something, but there's still sin and problems and pain and brokenness in this world. So how do we understand that? If Jesus has turned up and said the kingdom is here, and it doesn't look like the kingdom is here, now what is actually going on? And this is just a sort of attempt to put it, I guess, in, um, in diagrammatic form, because uh, I love, know how much you love diagrams. Um, essentially, Jesus turned up uh, at his first coming and he started preaching a message that the kingdom was here. The kingdom was breaking in. The kingdom was among you. You could see it. You could touch it. You could reach out and experience it for yourself. And then he died and he rose again. And at his death, it probably seemed like the kingdom of hope had been utterly in vain, but his resurrection seems to be actually an overturning of death, an overturning of the problems of, of sin and suffering in this world, and an establishing of the kingdom. And so if you think back to actually the promises in 2 Samuel 7, like, it's baffling to say to David, you're going to have a son uh, or an offspring, and his kingdom will never end, because every kingdom ends. And even if actually his kingdom might continue with other kings, like that doesn't seem to be what the promise is. The promise seems to be that actually not only will his kingdom continue, but he'll continue to be the king of it forever. <laughs> like, how can you have a king who is the king of a kingdom forever when kings die? Well, actually, we have it in Jesus because he died. Yes, but he rose again and will never be defeated again. So Jesus establishes the kingdom. But actually, we look around the world right now and we feel like, well, the establishment of God's kingdom seems to be somehow incomplete. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus also talked about a future day when he would come back and establish the kingdom in full. And there are various prophecies which talk about the kingdom as being future. It's at hand. We can experience it now. But it is one day coming in full. There will be a day when he will return and the kingdom will come completely. And Revelation chapter 11, uh, 15 says this, 
The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. There is coming a day where now the kingdom of God is there and there are other kingdoms as well and they're sort of in battle as it were. There is coming a day where the kingdom of the world will be utterly defeated by the kingdom of God. That will be all there is, the rule and reign of God. But we are not there yet. So sometimes when people talk about the kingdom, they use this phrase, which I think is really helpful. The kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. That is, Jesus has broken in. He has established his kingdom through his teaching, his life, his ministry, his words and his deeds, as we'll see in a minute, through his death and through his resurrection. But one day he'll come and establish it fully and finally. And everything that stands against the kingdom will on that day be banished. But right now we live in an overlap where the kingdom is now, but it's also not yet. And the question, of course, is how big is the overlap? Is there, uh, you know, is there a, a lot of the kingdom here or a little of the kingdom here? How much should we expect to experience the kingdom now? And that, of course, is the big question that we need to grapple when we think about things like healing or suffering or, or sin or all sorts of problems. And maybe we've got some questions about that. But essentially, Jesus was saying the kingdom is breaking in and will continue to break in until the day of his second coming, where it will be established fully forevermore. So Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was breaking in through his ministry and actually he told the disciples to go and to spread the kingdom as well. So he said this uh, in Matthew 10, as you go, proclaim this message, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. So Jesus sends his disciples out to continue the same message of extending the kingdom, proclaiming the kingdom and to do it in two ways. Proclaim the message with your words, the things you say, demonstrate it with your deeds. And I think actually those two things come together in the life of Jesus as well. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom in everything he did, but the words that he shared and the deeds that he did. Everything Jesus said and did pointed to the kingdom, the ruling and reigning of God. And so what we're going to do in the rest of our time is look at those two particular things, his words and his deeds. And we're going to sort of tease out um, how do they proclaim the kingdom. Any questions on that? No? Great. Okay. Um, let me just check my timings. Think what we're going to get through. Okay. Well, let's try and um, look. So we're going to look at Jesus' words and his deeds. And we'll try and look at his words first and uh, the stories, the stories of the kingdom and the signs of the kingdom. We'll try and look at his stories first uh, and then we'll take another break and then we'll, we'll look at signs for the rest of the time we have together. So next page. Um, Jesus talked a lot <laughs> as far as we know, like he taught a lot. He taught in loads of different ways, like sometimes straight sermons, sometimes uh, dialogue with people. And often he talked in stories as well. And the parables, I think, are key ways that Jesus communicated about the kingdom and in particular what the kingdom was like. And in particular, he challenged some of the ideas that people had about the kingdom. So sometimes the parables are quite tricky to know what to do with. Um, and, and I often find that when people preach on the parables, uh, they kind of miss a lot of things about what they were originally intended to do. And so we can, I've heard plenty, and I've probably given plenty of explanations of the parables, which Jesus, if he heard them, probably might have gone, yeah, not exactly what I was getting at, because they were, they were delivered to a particular people at a particular time with a particular message, which is all about the kingdom. And um, so here are some things to bear in mind when we are looking at the parables that Jesus taught. Uh, four C's, as it were. 
The parables are stories of the kingdom and they are communicative. That is, they're not just entertaining stories that Jesus told just to lighten the mood a little bit or break up the otherwise boring sermons. Like he, he told these stories deliberately to communicate a particular message. And so when we're interpreting parables, it's worth thinking, well, their meaning is likely to correspond to everything else Jesus did, because these are stories that illustrate the other things he is teaching and demonstrating. C.H. Dodd says the parables represent the interpretation which the Lord offered of his own ministry. They are stories which unpack what Jesus is here to do. N.T. Wright says they made sense only within the whole context of Jesus' career. They echoed, reflected, interpreted and indeed defended the main thrusts of his work and themselves set up other echoes in turn. And Wright points out, and he's correct, I think, in this, that the story which can be evoked by the phrase the kingdom of God may be present even though the phrase is itself absence, by, what he, by which he means this, like a parable doesn't have to mention the kingdom to be about the kingdom. Um, and actually, I would say as a rule of thumb, if you're reading the parables, they are all about the kingdom. Uh, and often when I teach this day, I get people into groups and we do loads of group work. And uh, <laughs> I say, what's this parable about? And um, people come back with all sorts of things. And I'm always like, it's about the kingdom. Just try and remember that. And like, you can't go wrong. Read a parable and your first assumption should be that it's about the kingdom and you can't go wrong. Then the question is, what does it teach you? It's about the kingdom. And of course, we can go wrong there, but <laughs> there are all sorts of things to, to tease out. But primarily, they are communicative tools about the main focus of Jesus' life, which was establishing the kingdom. Just want to point out that Andy is back. Uh, he told me he was going to um, to talk to someone and do some work, but he came back with a cup of tea. So clearly, that's what he was actually doing under the pretense of uh, having to go and speak to a tradesman or something like that. Um, busted, Andy. Uh, but it's great to have you back. Um, Wonderful. So firstly, the parables were communicative. Secondly, they were cultural. That is, they were written to particular people at a particular time with references that would make sense in their world. And so there are a whole load of things that we look at and we might interpret various different ways or things we might be confused about through the parables. It's worth remembering they weren't written to us. And if Jesus were telling the stories to us, he would probably refer to different things. You know, I don't regularly go fishing. I'm not a farmer. Like Jesus would probably talk to me about something that I know about. Or um, I don't know what that would be. The kingdom of God is like an iPhone or something like well probably a bad example but like he would speak to us culturally in different ways to how he spoke to those people and so we must not impose modern standards upon the way that we read um the, the, the kingdom parables a simple example is um that actually modern people do farming in different ways to how jesus original heroes did farming uh, in jesus day um you would sow seed and then you would plow up the soil Whereas now we plough the soil and then we sow the seed. And so when people sort of interpret the, the parable of the sower, like it's worth knowing that there are different interpretations that come from the way that they did farming that they understand that are different to today. There are various implications to do with that. Um, so they are cultural. Um, I remember reading a paper years ago about Jesus' parable of the mustard seed, where he says the, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds. And this scholar was like, well, Jesus clearly got it wrong because there's a smaller seed. It's like, well, yeah, there is now. <laughs> but Jesus, like in your part of the world, which is not the same part of the world where Jesus was at, like, of course, Jesus wasn't saying, oh, and by the way, in 3000 years, they're going to find a seed that's slightly different. And it's going to be like this. And like, Jesus was speaking to particular people in language that they needed to understand. So they're cultural and we mustn't impose sort of modern um, standards uh, upon them uh, that will cause us to misinterpret them. Uh, 
Uh, thirdly, they are confrontational. So they are stories that um, are actually not always jolly stories. They're sometimes stories that are meant to challenge and, um, and cause problems for the readers and to confront them. Um, and often, often the stories are familiar, but they have a twist to them, which shocks and sometimes offends the hearers. So I've got a four-year-old daughter and um, sometimes I'll read stories to her and just for a laugh, I'll just change one of the details of the story. She goes mental. It's really funny. Um, I mean, she probably doesn't find it funny, but like you tell the story and then like it's a familiar story. She knows where it's going and then you change something and she gets so angry because that's not the way the story is meant to go. And I think that's what Jesus does in his parables. He so often tells stories that would have been familiar to people, like using um, stories, uh, using themes that people were familiar with, Old Testament themes. Um, you know, the parable of the tenants is a retelling of Isaiah chapter five. And if people know this story of Isaiah chapter five, they think, oh, the story is going this particular way. We know how it's going to go. And then Jesus turns it on his head and changes something. And they were like, what are you doing? That's not how the story goes. And of course, the reason is that Jesus changes the familiar stories in order to show people where they've got it wrong. And often what he does is he casts people who thought they were the good guys as the bad guys in his retelling of the story in order to confront and offend and challenge people. They are confrontational stories. And people knew that. So in Matthew chapter 21, it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds. So sometimes people heard these stories and actually they got, oh, Jesus is saying something awful about us. We want to arrest him. We want to kill him. <laughs> They're not just nice stories. They are stories that evoke a strong reaction. Um, Jeremiah says this for the most part, although not exclusively, they are weapons of controversy. Every one of them calls for an answer on the spot. All the parables that deal with the gospel itself are a defense of the good news. The actual proclamation of the good news to sinners took a different form in the offer of forgiveness. In Jesus inviting the guilty to taste his hospitality and in his calling them to follow him, it was not to sinners that he addressed the gospel parables, um, but to his critics, those who rejected him because he gathered the despised around him. That is when Jesus taught to regular people, people in need, people who were struggling or people who were open to the kingdom, he often taught them in gentle ways, in sermons. When he told the stories, it was often because he wanted to use them in order to offend and to shock and to challenge uh, most often his critics. And then fourthly and finally, the parables are cryptic and sometimes they're deliberately so. Um, there's loads that you could say about this, but you know, when Jesus is asked, why did he teach the parables? Sometimes he says, I've taught this in order that you will see and understand. And sometimes he said, I've taught in these ways so that you'll see and not understand. It's like, which is it, Jesus? Like, did you tell the stories to help people understand? Or did you tell them to stop people understanding? And I think it's both. Uh, because Jesus has used this creative form of a parable in order to have different effects in different people. Um, yeah, I won't look at these particular texts, but I've written some stuff on this. I can send it to you if it'd be helpful. But essentially, he tells a story which is um, designed to bring out whatever is in the heart of the hearer. So to those who are already hardened and closed to the idea of the kingdom, what the parables do is it makes them angry and they actually get further away from the kingdom. It confirms them in their hard heartedness. Whereas to those who are open to the kingdom, it actually opens them up even further and helps them to appreciate the kingdom. Um, yes, yeah, so, I mean, let me give you an example, two examples on this, actually. There's a quote from, I don't know if it was originally from Spurgeon, but he says it, um, at least it may have predated him. He says something like that, the sun, um, how does he put it? Uh, the same sun falls on the 
the ground and the wax and essentially the same sun hardens the clay and melts the wax <laughs> and I quite like that idea it's one sun that affects different surfaces different ways to one that is already hard and predisposed towards hardness it further hardens it to one that is already soft and predisposed towards softness it softens it further same sun I think the parables work different ways and we see that in the reactions that people have to it uh, another illustration which I quite like um, I don't know if you've seen the crown the tv show the crown um I, I wasn't really interested in watching it because, I, to be honest, I don't have a lot of interest in the royal family. It's not that I have strong opinions, it just, just doesn't really interest me at all. And so I wasn't really that bothered about watching it. And a friend of mine said to me, what's really interesting about it is that you don't have to really care about the royal family or be a fan of the royal fa family to enjoy the show. And he said what's really interesting is that whatever opinion you have about the royal family, you'll probably find enough within it to reinforce that opinion. So if you go into it thinking, oh, I love the royal family, then you watch the show and you're blown away by all the sort of glitz and glamour and you enjoy that side of it. Whereas actually, if you already go in thinking this is a ridiculous institution, what happens is you find plenty of reasons to be confirmed in your view. You watch the same show, but it makes people respond differently. Very few people, I think, will watch the show and come out feeling differently about the royal family to how they went in. And I, I think that's true. And I certainly found that myself. Um, and I think that's kind of a picture of the parables, really. The same story can have a different effect depending on the heart disposition that you bring with you into it, uh, if that makes sense. That's the power of story. It can do things that straight teaching can't. So four thoughts about the parables. Um, and if we had time, we could look at uh, a whole load of parables. And often in this kind of thing, I would get you into groups and we would look at five or six together. Um, but what I'll do is just give you a couple of pointers for how to read the parables. And then maybe we'll look at one um, as a sort of demonstration of that. I think that's probably our best use of time. So next page. Um, the parables are stories about the kingdom. They're communicative, cultural, confrontational and cryptic. So here are just four thoughts for how we should read the parables. Firstly, look for one main point. Often a parable uh, will actually only have one basic truth in mind. And we mustn't try to read more into the parable than we ought to. We must never make a parable stand on all four legs, says R.T. Kendall. And not every detail of a parable has to have a meaning. So sometimes you read the, mean, the parables and you're like, well, what does this bit represent? Or why don't you use this word? And you can really like overanalyze it and tear it apart. And it's like, um, <laughs> you know, you, in science classes where you try to dissect a butterfly to understand the butterfly and you may understand the butterfly better but you kill it in the process and, and sometimes that's what people are like with the parables like let's take this apart and you kill the parable and um, often they have one major point and it's about the kingdom basically if you read a parable and come away going oh it's about the kingdom you've essentially got it now the question is what does it say about the kingdom um but basically they have one point um and it's usually about the kingdom but then in order to understand what the particular meaning is of the parable is worth looking at the setting around it so often when we read a scripture i think the best way to do it is to read the scripture and then read the bits that come before and after it and then to widen out and so you read a passage and you think why is that next to that bit and that bit is there a reason why those are put together why does that feature this part of the story why does this feature within the whole of this particular gospel and as you read out you start to get the meaning so you start with a parable and then you look at what's around it. Is there a teaching uh, near it? Is there a miracle around it? Um, has this been told in a particular way because it's then followed by a miracle which makes the same point in a different kind of way? Um, what's it been grouped with? 
then look at its place within Jesus' ministry as a whole. So how does this parable not only fit with what is next to literarily in the text, but also um, how does it fit with the other themes of Jesus' ministry, in particular the theme of the kingdom? And then look at Old Testament imagery. You know, often the parables talk about particular things like a tree or a bird or a fish or something or other and you can think that oh, i wonder what the tree represents and you can come up with a whole load of different things of what a tree represents but the best way to figure out what a tree represents is to think well what does it represent before in the bible and so when you come across old testament imagery um, most often the best place to figure it out is to go back to the old testament and find out what did trees mean there um, and then it's worth asking, well, is Jesus using the symbol in the same way that it was used in the Old Testament? Or are there any tweaks? Are there any twists? Are there any changes that he wants to bring? And if so, why? Uh, let me give you one example and then we'll take a break because I've, I've talked too much and too fast. fast. But uh, let's look at one particular um, parable. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Matthew 13? And let's do... Yeah, let's do, the, let's do the mustard seed. So Matthew 13. I mean, interestingly, I've given you three options there, all in Matthew 13. So Matthew has deliberately come together some parables for a particular reason. Um, it will be worth exploring why that is. Uh, but let's just look at the first of these. So Matthew 13, 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Okay, and if you look around, let me just flick before, you've got the parable of the weeds, the parable of the sower, after it, you've got um, the parable of yeast, you've got the parable of the weeds explained, hidden treasure. So he's like a whole collection of things about the kingdom. So first of all, what's he talking about? And what's the point of the parable? It's about the kingdom, right? Okay, We can't go wrong with that. I mean, partly because he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, but all the parables are about the kingdom. So that's the place to start. Um, he told them a story about the mustard seed. Uh, now, there's all sorts of language about trees and plants. And so if you're thinking, like, what do I do with that? What do trees and plants represent? Where's the best place to go? The Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, in particular the prophets, regularly trees refer to nations. So often it talks about the, the, uh, the cedars of Lebanon or Assyria is depicted like a tree or in Daniel there, you know, Babylon is depicted like a tree. And often when the prophets talk about trees and birds coming into rest in it, that is a picture of a nation at which the other nations come and find a home and find rest. So there's something of that going on here. Jesus is talking about the kingdom and he is talking about it being like a kingdom a nation like a tree in which other nations will come and find rest the birds of the air will come and perch in its branches so there's all this kind of idea going on and if we had time you could look at ezekiel 31 and daniel 4 and see how how jesus is playing on that kind of language of trees but what i think is interesting and and this is maybe a cultural thing uh, and an illustration of how we can often misread the parables is it Jesus is talking about a mustard seed and a mustard bush. And I don't know what a mustard bush looks like. <laughs> I've never grown a mustard bush. And what we often do is we hear this and we think, oh, Jesus is saying, like, the kingdom is going to grow to be a massive tree. I mean, it starts small, but it's going to grow to be a massive tree. Is a mustard bush a massive, massive tree? <laughs> like, it's worth Googling that. But do you know how big a mustard tree is? It's usually like six to 12 feet max. 
Whereas actually when the trees are mentioned in the Old Testament, like um, uh, like the, the, the cedars, these giant trees, they're like a hundred feet. Like the cedars of Lebanon or, or Assyria, when they are being talked about in Ezekiel and Daniel, they're not mustard bushes, they're massive trees. So actually when Jesus is talking to people who knew that a cedar is like a hundred foot tall and a mustard bush is only sort of six to 12 foot tall, actually that's quite different. Like they would have heard that and, and interpreted it differently to us. We hear that, oh, a small tree grows into something massive. They think, well, a small tree grows into something substantially bigger, but it's still nowhere near as big as a cedar, right? So the message of the kingdom, according to Jesus, to people who understood that, was, yes, the kingdom is going to start small and it's going to grow big. But actually, it may never look as impressive as the other nations, which are represented by cedars. It's going to grow big, but it may never actually look as impressive in the world's eyes as other nations. But that's OK, because still the birds are going to come and find the rest in it. So we hear it as it like the kingdom's going to get massive. Actually, Jesus is probably trying to say you might be a bit disappointed if you have high hopes for the kingdom. It's going to look different to what you expect. And of course, that's totally what happened with his death. No one thought that Jesus was going to die, that that was the way that the kingdom was going to come about. And people might have thought really like, we were expecting a ruler. We were expecting a revolution. We were expecting someone to come and, and uh, establish God's throne and kick out the Romans. Hey, your expectations are out. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't going to fulfill its purpose. The birds at the air will still kind of find rest in its branches. Does that make sense? Okay, I've gone very fast there. I think I've <laughs> we got all my timings wrong so sorry for that uh barrage of information but i hope that that helps a little bit and actually if you were to go away and read the other passages in in matthew and other um uh, parables as well and sort of try and apply those think this is all about the kingdom but what is it particularly telling us about the kingdom um how would it have heard to the original hearers rather than what does it mean to us today um i, th I think you'll hopefully find some of that quite helpful Okay, how about we take a break? Let's take a 10 minute break and um, reset and come back. And I'll think about how I'm going to finish this without um, overloading you with too much information. Um, actually, I tell you what, let's take five minutes actually, because then I might give you some breakout room uh, in a second. So let's take five minutes as a breather and then we'll come back and we'll pick up the final session and then I might get you to do some stuff in a breakout room. Does that sound okay? Great, welcome back. Um, Great, I've got a couple of messages here. Thank you for sending this through. Okay, so um, Pharisees, I understand, were waiting for a more uh, earth, uh, kind of earthly kingdom, uh, and they had their hard heart and um, hard hardened. <laughs> I can't even read today. <laughs> Sorry, heart hardened. Uh, Jesus also mentions that there are words that were hidden to the wise men as he was speaking different things and coming to mind about the scripture, trying to make connections. Good. The idea of the kingdom as a mustard seed also reflects a different, yeah, totally different kingdoms. He said. Yeah, and um, here's something that may help at the risk of self-promotion. Um, sorry, this is a blog post that I wrote. Uh, oh, sorry, I just sent that to Bill and Christian. Christiana, sorry, I didn't mean to send it to you. I meant to send it to everyone. There we go. Um, this is a, a a blog post which may be helpful or, or may be incredibly dull. Uh, that's not for you to <laughs> figure out. Um, that sort of looks at some of the things that Jesus said about the parables, particularly in Mark, where he he seems to say both that the parables are to reveal and also to conceal, um, keep things hidden from wise wise men. Uh, and that post sort of tries to sort of tease that out in a bit more depth than I'll be able to now. Um, but yeah, I think Jesus does, does deliberately speak in a way that 
um, keep things hidden from wise men, um, or people who think they're wise, rather. I don't think he hides anything from people who are truly wise, but he challenges the nature of wisdom um, and helps people who think that they are wise and are wise in their own eyes to realise that actually their wisdom may look different to the wisdom of the king himself. Um, I'm glad that things sort of pop to mind. Um, uh, and I think actually reading, reading scripture is all about just making those connections, really, and um, doing it under the inspiration of the spirit. And uh, I, I often find that I might read a passage that I've read like a hundred times before. And actually, it's when you read it in the light of something else that suddenly you make connections that you never would have done before. So um, I was just reading. Um, uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm reading first and second Kings and then also I was looking at a bit in Exodus and preparing for this. And suddenly, like I was making connections I'd never seen before about language that I was like, oh, wow, there's that language there. It's, of course, as you read books next to each other that you see the connections. Um, and so I think that's why it's helpful sometimes to read a bit of the Old Testament, a bit of the New Testament, a bit of the Psalms and see the connections that get made between them. Um, I think our minds are meant to bounce between them um, and sort of almost create this odd uh, interconnected network of themes that come together. Um, so why, yeah, why do some things need to be hidden for some people? Jesus mentions that a lot of times. Yeah, so the um, the the post that I've sent there may help help that. I don't think Jesus was deliberately trying to hide things so much as I think he was trying to reveal things from people's hearts. So there are some stuff that he hid for a particular reason. So when Jesus tells people uh, not to um, declare that he is um, the king and not to tell people that he's healed them. Um, I think there's a timing reason for that. Jesus knew that if word got out too quickly or when he's in a particular region, um, then actually that might scupper his plans because the authorities would sweep in and have him arrested early. And so I think there's there are times when Jesus keeps hidden things for, because it's not the right time. And there are times as well where actually Jesus wants to say things in cryptic ways that some people will interpret differently because, um, you know, Jesus stood up and said, well, I, in fact, what he did when he said the temple is going to be destroyed, that was that was it. Like, that was the end. And so he hinted at the obsolescence of the temple many different ways. But actually, in the moment where he said it explicitly, um, his fate was sealed and he was arrested and killed. So um, so I think there are times where Jesus deliberately used this stuff to keep hidden his true meaning, uh, partly because actually being uh, blatant about it would have would have cost him his life which he knew was coming in the end but he was waiting to the right moment and then part of it is that actually he wanted to tell stories in such a way as to bring out what was already in their hearts so those who thought they were wise but actually were hard-hearted the more they heard that these things were about them uh, and that Jesus was critiquing them the more hard-hearted they became and so they carried on down this trajectory those who were already soft-hearted found their hearts being open more to the kingdom um yeah so as Andy says um uh, to those who are truly seeking yeah it's like um yeah like who it says in proverbs about seeking wisdom like treasure um yeah great um and a, a comment from someone else just directly to me i think this one i always assume the comp the gospels were chronological very interesting to hear about the creative arrangement of the gospel and to whom it's written yeah i think it's i think i would want to say that actually they are largely chronological as well um and I, th I think the flow of them largely does cover what Jesus did over three years, um, but not strictly chronological in so much as they probably did happen in different um, 
orders and you know John 2 is a great example for that which I'm not going to get into today because that's out of my out of my uh, remit but you know the the cleansing of the temple in most gospels comes around the sort of you know 20s in those sorts of chapters in John it seems to come at the beginning of his ministry what's going on there uh, were there two cleansing of the temples or did John put it in a different order because he wants to emphasize something different maybe Tom O'Toole looked at that last month um but like there seems to be something going on there that within a broadly chronological story um the the gospel writers feel free to move things around a little bit um without undermining the truthfulness of the whole material yeah okay great well thank you for um those comments and um uh, so what i want what i want to do i kind of feel like i've got my timings wrong a bit um so sorry, I, sorry for rushing that. And if we had been together, we would have done it slightly differently. We would have had more discussions and back and forth and hopefully it have felt like such a torrent of information. But I hope that it's made sense nonetheless. Um, but just to sort of summarize, um, what I was, I guess, trying to say is that the kingdom is a theme that runs through scripture that people had always longed for and hoped for, um, that it was the reestablishment of God's rule and reign that would bring goodness, peace, shalom, freedom, salvation. But what they expected of that was probably a king who would come and do one of different things, like bring a violent revolution, kick out Rome, rule a physical earthly kingdom, those sorts of things, uh, bring about the, the deepening of the law, those sorts of things. So when Jesus comes along and he says the kingdom is here, like that excited people or it challenged people. But then Jesus lived a life and did things and told stories that actually probably disappointed a lot of people as well because he didn't match their expectations. Um, but the whole of Jesus' life is about the kingdom and about both talking about it and also demonstrating it as well. And so uh, we're looking today at primarily his stories and his signs, the things he says about the kingdom and the things he does about the kingdom. And so the next thing I want to look at is miracles, the signs of the kingdom. So we are on page uh, uh, 18 of the notes, um, which start with the miracles, the signs of the kingdom. And I think it's worth just stopping and recognising that, that often when we read the stories about, the, about Jesus teaching things, um, either a sermon or a parable, what we often do is we think, what is Jesus trying to say? What's he trying to communicate? What does this mean? And when we read the stories of the healings, we often don't ask that question. And we instead go, oh, it's so nice that Jesus did that. And we don't stop and ask, why did he do that particularly? What's the meaning of this? Now, often I think we, we look at stories of miracles and the kind of questions that it does make us ask is, are things like, does Jesus still do this today? Or um, to what extent should I pray for the sick? Or to what extent should I expect um, healing today? And we ask those kind of questions. But actually what I want to suggest is we should step back and ask the same questions about the signs as we do about his sermons and his stories, which is why did he do this and what do they communicate? So I think um, I want to suggest that actually the signs have a narrative function. That is, they communicate a particular story about the world and a particular thing about Jesus. And they they are actually designed to communicate something about the kingdom. I mean, they're described as signs, right? And you don't see a sign and just go, oh, that's nice, and talk about the aesthetics of the sign. Like, the reason that signs exist are to point to something. And so thinking about the miracles, not just as miracles, as in sort of things that break into this world with a supernatural experience, but, but as signs that point to something is quite important. They are signs that are meant to help us to look to something else and to understand something differently. Namely, they're meant to help us to understand something about the nature of the kingdom. 
So I want to sort of challenge you and provoke you. Every time you read a miracle story, ask yourself the same sorts of questions that you would ask if it were a teaching text or a parable. Ask yourself, what does this tell me about the king and the kingdom? And here are some little tips for uh, how to think about the miracles and the signs and to um, start to unpack what they might mean. Ask yourself, what do these signs tell us about the king and the kingdom? And first of all, look and see if the episode itself gives you any clues. Um, sometimes the gospel writers very helpfully say, and Jesus did this to demonstrate that X. Um, which is brilliant when the gospel writers do our hard work for us and they tell us why Jesus did the particular thing and why they chose to write it down. So look and see what the gospel writers say, or look at what people do in response. Like look at the reactions of the people. Um, sometimes the reactions are mentioned in order to help us to understand how they interpreted the particular sign and that helps us to know how we should interpret it as well. Um, look at why Jesus did the miracle. Like, did it follow a request? Did people come and ask Jesus for something? Or does Jesus seem to do it spontaneously? Um, how did people respond? Does the author does give us any clues? Like, what can you tell from the passage itself um, about what this sign is meant to demonstrate about the King of the Kingdom? Secondly, as I said earlier about widening out, like, I then ask about the wider context. So in just the same sort of way that I suggested with the parables, ask what's before it, what's after it? What, sort of bunch of material is this coming in? Uh, is it next to a parable? Is it next to a teaching? Is it next to another miracle? Essentially ask yourself, well, why has this author told me to tell me this, uh, chosen to tell me this story right now when he could have told me it at any other point in the story? Why right now? What is he trying to say? Um, look at what precedes it and what comes after it. Sometimes miracles are put next to parables because they illustrate the same point. Um, Jesus you know, speaks about, um, uh, you know, he heals a blind man next to having just talked about the blindness of the teachers of the law. And so there seems to be a reason here. Jesus is addressing people and saying, essentially, you're blind and you're missing the point. And then he goes and heals a blind man. Uh, so he's physically demonstrating what he's just talked about in words. And Jesus does that various different ways. And actually, if you look at, we won't go through these now, but um, if you look at the cursing of the fig tree, the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the blind man in John 9, um, you find that that's exactly what happens. Uh, bits of teaching are put next to miracles and they both communicate the same message. So it's worth asking, what's the context? Um, when, where, and to whom did Jesus do the miracle? Um, did Jesus do the miracle with friends around him? Or did he do the miracle with enemies around him? And if so, do you think that Jesus did the miracle in order to provoke his enemies <laughs> and to annoy them a little bit or to challenge them? Or did he do it because he just wanted to show compassion? Did Jesus do the miracle privately? You know, sometimes he told people to leave whilst he did the miracle privately. Um, it's worth asking those kinds of things. I don't know if you can hear that. My next door neighbours have started some building work. So um, if you hear banging and hammering, uh, I'm very sorry about that. Uh, this week I had to pre-record a sermon for this coming Sunday and uh, they chose that day to fit a new kitchen. So <laughs> or begin fitting a new kitchen. So it was drilling and all sorts of things. Um, yeah, hopefully it won't be too uh, disruptive. They're not meant to do too much today. But there you go. So, OK, look at the episode, look at the wider setting, look at Jesus' wider miracles uh, ministry, rather. Does the miracle shed light on any other central theme of Jesus' uh, teaching um, or actually on the gospel's purpose as a whole? So now knowing that Matthew talks about uh, Jesus as the new Moses and Jesus 
uh, in Mark is sort of dealing with the powers, um, uh, or in Luke, he's particularly sort of the Davidic king. Like knowing that about the gospel writer's aim, it's worth asking, what well, does this miracle fit within that in any particular way? Um, and then look at the use of Old Testament imagery. So in the same sort of way that I said with the parables, the best way to know why did Jesus talk about a tree or talk about light or talk about salt or whatever it is, is to go back to what those symbols meant before. We can do the same sorts of things with the miracles. Um, are there particular things that sight represents in the Old Testament? Are there particular things that light represents? Does it remind you of passages from the prophets? Uh, and will they help you to understand things about the king and the kingdom? Um, so four sort of broad comments, and uh, if we had time, we would probably look at those three examples, um, but we won't. You can do that in your own time if you'd like, um, and I hope you find it helpful. But let's go to the next page, and what I want to do – help me out here – how useful is group work? Um, often if I'm in a room with you, I can see if you're enjoying group work, I can either extend it or cut it short. But when you're in breakout rooms, I have no idea. You might be sitting there thinking, this is a complete waste of my time. So either what we can do here is I can get you to go into breakout rooms and have a discussion, or I can talk you through it, which would be preferable to you. If you would really like to do some group work, why don't you raise your hand so I can see. <laughs> well, that's pretty unanimous. <laughs> well, no one wants to do group work. Okay, great. Well, I'm gonna assume that either that's because I'm such a great teacher, you want to hear from me more, uh, or you're in such awful breakout rooms before <laughs> that you don't want to be with those people again, or something else. Um, I'm going to interpret it positively. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Um, great. Okay, wonderful. I don't want to do something that's unhelpful to you, but at the same time, I don't want you to have to listen to my own voice for, um, for so long. But if it's helpful to you, I'll talk you through it. <laughs> my breakout room was lovely, says Carol. Um, we thinks she protests too much. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, great. Okay. Well, let's let's work through this together. Then. So, um, page nineteen. Um, signs of the kingdom. Jesus didn't do one type of miracle that he just sort of bashed out the same sort of type of miracle all the time. It wasn't all about healing. Like Jesus did loads of different types of miracles. And as we look at the different miracles that he did and we ask those kind of questions about what the episode tells us, the wider setting, his wider ministry and the Old Testament imagery, those help us to understand uh, things about the king and the kingdom. But I think it's fair to say that actually his miracles fall into different categories. And if we think about them as different categories, I think each of them tells us something specific about the king and the kingdom. Uh, so if we were to get into breakout rooms, what I would do is I would give you some of these categories of miracle and get you to ask some of those questions for yourself. What do these types of miracle tell us about the king and the kingdom? But what I'll do is I'll just sort of talk through them and maybe after a couple I'll pause and you know, we can take questions or maybe we'll get through them. We'll take questions at the end. Let's see. Um, I think the probably the biggest type of miracle or most frequent type of miracle Jesus does is he heals the sick. Um, he does it all the time. There are plenty and plenty of examples of this. Um, Luke chapter eight is the one that I've highlighted here where Jesus heals um, a woman who has been suffering from bleeding for many years. Um, and of course, on one level, we look at that and we just go, wow, that tells us about the compassion of God. Um, what is the king like? What is his kingdom like? He's compassionate, he's kind, he cares about our physicality. He's not only here to establish a, a spiritual kingdom, he cares about our bodies and he heals us and it does communicate that. But actually, as you think about 
Old Testament passages and that sort of stuff, uh, you go through the process that I've just sort of talked about, you realize there is a deep significance here that is more than just Jesus cares about our bodies and wants to heal them. Because if you look at the Old Testament passages like Leviticus 15 and, and so on, you find that someone who is in the position of this lady not only had a physical problem, she had a spiritual problem as well. Because according to the Torah, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean. And so her physical ailment actually caused a whole load of issues in her life. Social exclusion. She couldn't be around other people. She couldn't be close to family because she would make them ceremonially unclean. She couldn't go to the temple. She couldn't worship God. She couldn't interact with society. Um, so according to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, she would have been kept at arm's length and anyone who came near to her would have been made unclean. So her issue was more than just a physical issue. It was an everything issue. It affected every part of her life. So when Jesus comes and he, he touches her and he heals her, what should have happened is that he becomes ceremonially unclean. Actually, what happens is that both of them, right, he doesn't, <laughs> but she becomes clean in the process. And so I, I think there's something going on here where the, the physical healing of this lady and many other examples as well actually is far deeper than just physical healing. It points to something else, which is that God cares about our bodies, but he cares about everything as well. And physical healing is a symbol of, um, of restoration in society, restoration of hope, being brought back into the community of God, having your dignity restored, um, having stigma taken away from you. And physical healing points to all of that. So what does it tell us about the nature of the king and his kingdom? It's that God cares about everything. Physical healing and spiritual healing are not separate. Actually, physical healing is a sign of everything that God wants to do. He wants to restore shalom to all of our lives. Um, ah, there you go. In fact, Carol has, Carol agrees with me, which is good. <laughs> that being unclean would have prevented her from worshipping the temple too. It's spiritual healing as well. Yeah, these two things come together. And actually, Jesus often says to people um, when he heals them, uh, your faith has healed you or made you well. And the Greek word is sozo, which means salvation. It does mean healing, but it actually means salvation for all of you as well. So these things are, are interwoven. And the physical healing of people talks about the full um, holistic healing that Jesus wants to bring. Does that make sense? Fantastic. Um, yeah, yeah, Andy says, and he also said, go and show yourself to the priest sometimes. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because, and, and Jesus wants people to still go through the processes of, of being, um, you know, tested and being, uh, um, <laughs> I can't think what the word is, uh, cleared, I suppose, um, uh, through the technical channels so that the priests see that you've been healed and therefore you're allowed to go back into society, etc. And also, I suppose it's a witness to the priests as well. If you've just seen this lady, you know she's ceremonially unclean one day and the next day, it's like, how did that clear up? You've had this problem for years. Well, I think it's a sign to the priests as well of what Jesus is doing. Yeah. Great. So physical healings point to the wholeness that Jesus wants to bring. And tell us something about the kingdom. Second category is raising the dead, um, which in one sense is, I guess, an extreme form of healing. <laughs> uh, but I think it's actually a category in its own right as well, because it points to something that Jesus um, wants to do for all of creation. We don't have time to get into this properly. I teach a whole day on uh, views of resurrection and, and um, the afterlife. 
but as a ridiculously quick summary, I think the majority view at the time of Jesus was that um, God was going to put the world to rights and there would be a physical resurrection that would happen for all people. They would be raised to life again from death, um, but that would happen at the end of time, at the final establishing of the kingdom. Um, and so in John chapter 11, which is the raising of Lazarus, um, Jesus talks to Martha and says, well, do you believe that he'll be raised again? And Martha says, yes, I do, at the resurrection of the dead. And what she means is, you know, she's expressing this good Jewish theology that actually the resurrection is going to come, but it's going to come you know, in the future at the end of all things. And Jesus says, well, actually, he says, I am the resurrection of the life. Namely, that future thing is broken into the here and now. It's not going to wait to that day, but actually what he does is he raises Lazarus right now as a sign of what he is going to do for all creation. So his sign of healing Lazarus is not just that he cared for this family and he missed his friend, although that's absolutely true. And we see his emotion come through the passage. Rather, in, in raising him from the dead, he is making a sign, a pointer to what he is ultimately going to do for all creation. So his, his raising of Lazarus is a teaching moment, which is telling you something um, about what he's going to do for all creation. And Lazarus would have died again. Like he, that resurrection was temporary, uh, but it was a temporary sign that pointed to what was going to happen ultimately for all creation. And actually within that as well, um, she says, I am the resurrection and the life. And that Greek phrase, ego eimi, I am. Um, there's a real significance to that. You might have picked that up when you looked at John last time, I don't know, but it's a claim to divinity. He is claiming to be I am. Um, God himself and people recognize that I think because the Jewish leaders wanted to kill him for it um, you wouldn't want to kill someone if they had just done something nice for someone you kill someone because you recognize the significance of what they've done and that this is a teaching point that Jesus is claiming to be God and he's claiming to be the God who's come to put the world to rights yeah um <laughs> yeah I'm getting a few questions in the chat so I'm sort of trying to <laughs> look at notes on camera and you and and um Good question, Keith. Um, can you say a few words about when Jesus heals the blind man um, who says he can now see men walking as trees and then he completes the healing with the second um, touch and treatment? Yeah, I, th I think, yeah, well, that's really interesting. It's worth looking, when you look at um, healings, it's worth asking, is there something, what are the particular details? Like the, the gospel writer could have simply said, and he healed him and skipped the fact that it took two times to heal him. Uh, but there's something, deliberate that he wants to say I'm oh, sorry my um, phone is my wife's phone is connected to this computer so um, I'm getting a random call come through let me try and um, dismiss that uh, so yeah there's a particular reason why some of those details are mentioned um, another example is where, where Jesus spits in the mud and rubs it into the guy's eyes you think why would you do that it's worth thinking well what does mud represent and creation from the earth is this a new creation moment so i think with the trees maybe there's some symbolism to do with the trees going on but i think maybe one of the reasons it's mentioned there is just to encourage us that if it took jesus two times it might take us two times and it's worth persevering in prayer i think about that passage all the time whatever the symbolism of walking around like trees might mean uh, and i don't really know to be honest um what i love about that passage is that jesus didn't heal the guy the first time there was a partial healing and a full healing and maybe that actually talks about the nature of the kingdom which is that it comes in part and one day it will come in full. And so my job now is to not be disappointed when things don't come as fully and finally and completely as I might like, but to persist, keep waiting, 
for the kingdom to come in full. And I think there's something of that going on. When I pray for the sick, I will regularly, um, after the first time, I will pray for them. And um, uh, if nothing has happened, I'll say, you know what? That was great. I've got this example that Jesus prayed twice. And so we're going to keep going. Or if it's 25% healed, I'll say, I've got this great story. Jesus did this. And I know the kingdom of God will come fully. And one day we'll all experience healing. Let's keep praying. Um, and I think that's, that's part of how we learn from the miracles. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm going to keep going and then I'll come back to some of these questions. So feel free just to keep putting them in the chat. Um, we're very happy for you to do that. Um, but I'll keep going through the five categories and then we'll come and answer some of those. So the third category is um, what I've called here nature miracles. And there are various miracles where Jesus interacts with um, not physical bodies, um, but nature. So fig trees or storms or water or um, these, these sorts of things. And of course, actually, the whole of creation responds to his death with the sort of sky turning black and the, the earthquake and that sort of stuff. So there seems to be an interaction where Jesus um, demonstrates his power over nature. Um, he walks on water, he calms a storm. And the response that that creates in people tells us something about what Jesus is claiming through this sign. This is a sign, a pointer towards the fact that Jesus is coming to do something that no human being can do. So how did the disciples react when uh, in Mark chapter four, when Jesus is interacting with the storm and the water, they say, who is this man who can do these things? And they recognize that in this sign, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he is more than a man. He is actually the creator God um, in flesh. And if you look at Psalm 107 and Amos chapter four, it prophesies about um, God ruling over creation. And it seems that when Jesus does these signs, he is showing that he is the one who is able to rule over creation, which is a pointer of the fact that he is the one who is going to come and restore all of creation. Um, it's probably also worth noting that the sea or the waters are a common Old Testament theme, which represent chaos. And we see that in Genesis and we see that in Job and we see that in the Psalms, various different points. The sea and in other ancient Near Eastern literature as well, the sea constantly uh, represents chaos that stands in opposition to the rule and reign of God, which is why at Genesis uh, creation comes by stilling the waters. Um, it's why the Exodus is a rescue through the chaos of water. It's why Noah, um, the, the, it, it's about God rescuing people through the waters. It's why in Revelation we're told there is no sea, not because God has done away with all fish and we don't need the sea anymore, but rather because he is saying that chaos will be ultimately removed. So when Jesus interacts with creation and he shows his power over the sea, there is a long history of how that metaphor was understood. And he's meant to be demonstrating the fact that the king and the kingdom is coming to quash chaos forevermore, which is a sign to the fact that he's going to come day, back one day and there'll be no more chaos. It will all be gone. There'll be no sea and all that the sea represents. And I think all of that meaning is somehow tied up within these miracles. And I think the gospel writers want us to see that. Fourth category. I'll keep going through this and then we can we can take some questions. A fourth category is food miracles. Um, there are various different food miracles. Um, for example, in, I mean, in John chapter two, so I've obviously gone outside the synoptics here, but there's the turning of water into wine or Jesus multiplies food, uh, feeds the 5,000, feeds the 4,000. Um, what do those represent? Well, I think, again, it's not just that he looked at hungry people or people that didn't have enough wine and think, oh, I'd like them to have a bit more food or wine. Like, maybe that was part of it. He wanted to show compassion. But I think there's a symbolism behind it. So when we look at these kind of things, we should look at well, what does wine represent in the Old Testament? Uh, it represents um, 
it represents shalom, it represents peace. So in the prophets, they often talk about new wine and good wine as being a symbolism of peace. Because if your land is flowing with wine, that means a number of things. That means that you have lived in the land long enough to grow vines and they're old vines, aged vines, um, and you've been able to produce wine. And so if that's the case, that means your land hasn't been overrun by enemies. Your vines haven't been burnt down. Like that means you've experienced peace. So actually the presence of good aged wine is a symbol of the fact that your whole nation has experienced peace and freedom from opposition and that sort of thing. So when Jesus um, does some of these things, he's drawing on these kind of old metaphors. One of the key metaphors I think that Jesus is drawing on when he does um, food miracles is this idea that comes through the prophets about eating with God. So Isaiah, for example, talks about the coming kingdom that will come at the end when God renews all things, and he talks about it in terms of feasts with what? Well-aged wine and good meat where we will get to feast with God. And so there's this idea of a banquet that will come when the Messiah comes. When the Messiah comes, he will create this massive feast where we get to celebrate with God. And so when Jesus goes and he eats with someone or he creates a meal out of nothing, essentially what he's doing is he is giving people a literal taste, no pun intended really, but he's giving people a taste of what the messianic banquet will be like. So that thing that just seems like, oh, that's a nice thing to do. Actually, it's a sign that points to something about what Jesus is coming to do. Um, and I think actually they, they, they interact nicely with the parables as well. If you think about the parables, lots of them are about eating, about wedding feasts and that sort of stuff. And I think when Jesus tells a parable like that and then does a, a miracle around food, I think they're making the same point, which is that the Messianic banquet, the great feast where people get to interact with God, um, they're coming. And he talks about that and he demonstrates that. Um, and then fifthly and finally, and then, then we'll, we'll take some questions. Um, he casts out spirits. Uh, and Jesus does this regularly through the Gospels, far more regularly than it features in my theology and practice at least, which is I find challenging and interesting to think about. But Jesus regularly casts out spirits. Um, and again, like it's easy to look at those things and think, oh, great, Jesus recognised that this person was oppressed, he did something nice for them. But actually, we should be treating these as signs that point to something. What do they point towards? Why did Jesus set people free? And what's the significance or the meaning of that? Um, it seems to be quite a big deal for Jesus. And I think the reason is because Jesus understood that his battle was not against flesh and blood, but was against powers and principalities. And he wanted to shape people's thinking so that they understood that as well, which is why I think Matthew and Luke both begin with the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus' first battle is against the Satan in the wilderness. Before he even goes on and does any other healing miracles, his first temptation is where the devil comes and says to him, you can have the kingdom, but without any of the pain or suffering that's to come. And at that moment, Jesus could have just utterly lost it. <laughs> he could have utterly given away the game and, um, and given into the temptation and never established the kingdom of God. But what does he do? He resists the power of the evil one. And then he spends his whole life overturning the power of the evil one as a sign to the fact that the evil one is not going to win and Jesus' kingdom is going to have the victory. And I think this is important because if you were to ask any of the uh, the groups that we looked at before, the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Zealots or the Essenes or any of those people, who do you think is the real problem? Like, who do you think is the real issue in your life that you need freedom from? Probably most of them would have said Rome, right? 
most of them would have said, well, th there's this oppressive power that's ruling over us. It's Rome at this point in the story. Previous points in the story have been Babylon or Egypt or whoever. They were looking at earthly rulers. And when Jesus comes along, like how many times does he talk about Rome? Not a great deal. Like how much of Jesus' ministry did he, he spend focusing on freedom from Rome? Actually, none at all. What does he do? He focuses on the spiritual power. And he says that what you really need is freedom from that. And he demonstrates that through releasing people from spirits. And that, of course, doesn't mean that he cares about or he doesn't care about oppression that comes from physical rulers. But rather, he recognizes that behind physical rulers, there's a spiritual power. That's the real problem. And crucially, I think he doesn't equate spiritual evil with just Rome. He calls out spiritual evil wherever it finds itself. And I think it's fair to say that actually the Pharisees and many of the teachers of the law were acting more like Satan than, than good. Um, and so actually when Jesus is casting out spirits, I think he is wanting to purify people from all sources of evil, wherever that comes from. Um, yeah. So the clash of the kingdoms for Jesus is not Rome versus Israel, but it's actually about Israel versus the heart of evil. Uh, and Jesus makes that clear because the, the, the person that he attacks uh, is actually the Satan, not Rome. And there are various different passages where Jesus talks about that. Luke chapter 11 is a key one um, where he talks about if, if I cast out spirits by the finger of God, the kingdom has come upon you. Um, so if you experience freedom from spirits, you've experienced the kingdom. It's still under Roman rule, but you've experienced the kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom has come to bring freedom from the deep power of, pro uh, 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 of evil, um, not just from human oppressors. Um, and I think that's also why Jesus and the rulers, uh, the, the, the religious rulers often clashed over what authority Jesus was doing this under. And uh, Jesus said things about, um, you know, if I cast things out by the power of Satan, then the, the kingdom of Satan is opposed to itself. It's, it's working against itself. Like Jesus understood that this was a clash of kingdoms that was demonstrated by casting out spirits. Okay, maybe that was a bit more rambling than I intended because I was intending to get you to do that work <laughs> for me. But there we go. So five categories of, of miracles. And seeing them as signs is really important. They're not just nice things Jesus did supernaturally. They are signs that point to something. Physical healings point to the physical and full holistic uh, restoration that Jesus wants to bring for body, mind and soul. Raising the dead points to the fact that Jesus is coming back to deal with the greatest problem, the greatest enemy of death, and he is one day going to make all things new and we get to experience a taste of that now. Nature miracles point to the fact that this is not just a, a, a sort of souped up human being that we're encountering in Jesus, we're encountering the creator God himself who is going to put all things to right and rid rid the world of chaos. Food miracles talk about the fact that this is a guy who is coming to give us a foretaste of the messianic banquet where we got to eat with God forever um, in his kingdom. And the casting out of the spirits reframes our understanding of who the true enemy is and shows that Jesus is not just about getting rid of temporary kingdoms here. He's actually rooting out the deep problem of evil that runs through all of creation. And those signs all point to just the holistic power of what Jesus is coming to do. I think that's pretty powerful. <laughs> so through Jesus' whole life and ministry, um, in the different ways that it's expressed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course through John as well, the gospel writers are trying to show us that Jesus is coming to bring the fulfillment of all the hopes and longings of the Old Testament. He is the new Moses. He's the new David. He is the one who fulfills all the prophecies of Isaiah. He is the 
um, the culmination of the kingdom narrative and he is the true revealer of what God is like. He is bringing about the kingdom. And Jesus just doesn't stand up and just say this one day. He demonstrates it through his whole life, through his signs, through his words, through his character, and of course, through his death and resurrection. And if we had time, you know, we would spend time looking at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. There's so much more that we could say. But essentially, the whole of Jesus' life um, points to the kingship, kingship of God. And if you remember back to the beginning of the last session where I talked about uh, what it means to be an image bearer, Part of the point is that as image bearers, we are created as statues so that when you see that statue, you say, ah, I get whose kingdom I'm coming under. And no one who encountered Jesus would have gone away thinking, I'm not really sure who he's following. Like you encounter him and you encounter a glimpse of the king. You encounter him as the true image bearer. And through what you experience through his words and his actions and his character, it makes you look up to the creator who has sent him. And that's what we're meant to be as well as image bearers of the king of kings. We're meant to follow Jesus, we're meant to emulate Jesus, and hopefully have the same reaction uh, when people encounter us. They should get a glimpse of the King of Kings through us. So, um, again, that's a lot of talking. Let's uh, see any particular questions. Um, uh, Denise, what is the significance of Jesus turning water into wine? Why did he do it? Um, uh, just to prevent the groom being shamed and running out of wine. Yeah, I, th I think that is part of it. Um, uh, but also, yeah, wine is a symbolic promise in Amos and various other prophets um, about what the new creation will be like. There will be peace and wholeness and um, and all the good things that come with wine as well, celebration and enjoyment. And so I think when Jesus brings new wine, that is the best wine, well-aged wine, he's giving people a foretaste of what that kingdom will be like. Uh, and of course, the fact that it happened at a wedding rather than just a party, I think is significant as well, because weddings are often a symbol of the final coming together of heaven and earth being united, God and man being united. And then the book of Revelation is a picture of what eternity will be like. It's a wedding between God and his bride. And so I think all that symbolism is tied up um, within that. But that's in John's gospel. So that suggests that Tom didn't do a good enough job last uh, month at helping you understand John. <laughs> I'm joking. I love Tom. Um, great. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, can I just jump in, Liam? If there's no more questions, I would just like to say thank you so much, Liam, for, yeah, for this morning um, and a little bit of this afternoon, 10 minutes of this afternoon. Um, I know, Liam, you said loads of times I'm talking too much or I'm rambling. Liam, I'll be honest with you, and I speak for everybody this morning, we love hearing you talk too, you know. It's been really, really good. I have learned tons of stuff this morning even though i've heard liam do this session twice before that may say more about my memory than anything else um but it's been so good to to kind of delve into the synoptics and, and look at the kingdom of god 